with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for checking in. Today, I have Dr. Barbara Kellerman, and she is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Center for Public Leadership. She was the founding executive director of the center and a member of the Kennedy School faculty for over 20 years. Kellerman has held professorships at Fordham, Tufts, Farley Dickinson, George Washington, Christopher Newport, and the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. She also served as director of the Center for the Advanced Study of Leadership at the University of Maryland. And today's episode, her full bio, by the way, is in the show notes with a whole host of other resources. But today's episode's a little bit of a happy accident. And Barbara, this is a bonus episode. I'm going to call our previous conversation Wandering and then in parentheses, with purpose, because I think I took us off track. <laughs> I don't know that you took us off track. We were both having a fine time in a really interesting conversation. And then later I said, did we get to what he really wanted to get to, which I think was a blog that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, leader of the year 2023, and uh, with a special emphasis on context, but some other things that we might want to touch on in the next few minutes. Yes, yes. And, you know, I would love to have a conversation about your follower of the year as well. And for listeners, I think Barbara's work is really, really important. And this is where we got a little bit off track with purpose in our last conversation, because she really thinks about leadership as a system, a relationship between the leader, the followers and the contexts. And so we spent a lot of that conversation talking about contexts. And so today, and when she writes about leadership, she often will include all three of those elements 
because it's important to understand what was happening in the context that allowed Marion Barry, for instance, to be reelected or any number of other conversations that we could kind of go down, examples of leaders. So let's start with leader of the year. Who was your leader of the year? Last year, it was Vladimir Putin. And you define how you choose leader of the year in a very specific way. So maybe we start there and then let's see what you thought. Yeah, I'm so glad you're allowing me to uh, define it first. But before I get into that, uh, thanks for this extra conversation. So, yes, uh, it's very important because when I say leader of the year, even the headline makes, and this is for 2023, for the year we just finished. We're talking in early January of 2024. It's very important for people to understand that is as is typical of me, when I say the word leader, I do not have a value judgment. I think you can be an incredibly impactful leader who is awful, bad, depending on how you wish to define the words. And I similarly think you can have an extremely impactful leader who is good, again, however you define it. And the word, you know, one of the problems with leadership is people see it, they have different values and therefore it becomes hard to agree on what is good and what is bad. But in this case, yes, the single criterion, uh, and it was uh, Putin in 2022 because he had just a few months earlier invaded Ukraine. That was and remains a very big global deal. So I came to 2023 with the same criterion. So I had several candidates for leader of the year, some Americans such as Jerome Powell, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, who had a very good 2023. Sean Fain is sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum, another American leader who had an extremely good year as head of the United Auto Workers Union, struck a very positive deal for his union members with the big three auto workers. And I think we will hear much more of him in 2024. And I also thought of Sam Altman, who, despite his final fiasco at the end of last year, nevertheless was and remains a very, very powerful, perhaps the single most powerful individual symbol of AI. And needless to say, I also thought of splitting it between Netanyahu and the leader of Hamas in war. But I decided against all of those. And I decided in this particular post to make a different point entirely. And I will simply make the point now and then we can move on uh, or explore this further. I picked up the point from an appreciation of Henry Kissinger written by Eric Schmidt, former CEO and everything of Alphabet slash Google, who was a close friend as well as a co-author, oddly perhaps, with Henry Kissinger, and who in the Wall Street Journal noted about Kissinger that he wondered where, he didn't really wonder, I guess, but he commented, where have all the leaders gone? Why are we living in a time in which great leadership, and he meant it really positively, seems to be virtually nowhere in evidence? And then I kind of built on that point and I asked myself and I asked our any readers of my blog, where have all the leaders gone and why does it seem so difficult at this moment in time to find a really strong, impactful leader in the best sense of that word. So it was no one. 
It was no one. And I analyzed why it was no one. I decided maybe to cheat my readers because I did. I, but I, as I said, I did name some people. And then I tried to explain why in this particular post, I'm choosing not to identify a leader of the year, but to explore why great leaders seem so few and far between. Well, and so you start to, and I don't want to take us fully back into this conversation. Listeners, you can look at the most recent conversation with Barbara and listen to kind of our explorations of that. But I do want to talk a little bit about kind of how did we get here, a partial list. And I think that's an important conversation for for listeners to at least be aware of. And of course, they can go to your blog post and there's a link to it and and explore a little bit more in depth. But how did we get here? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I actually printed it out, Scott, because I didn't want to omit. The list is partial. So if I omitted one or two of the items that I mentioned, that would be fine. And as you say, people can read the blog as they want to. But I thought for this purpose, I'll print it out and actually tick off the items that I did name. And that's what I'm going to do at this point. I think the last time we did refer to my item one, and I, I talk about this and write about it all the time, which is the trajectory of history, which is that because, again, confining this comment to liberal democracies, not autocracies, although there's a relationship between the two, why is it that leaders are so hard to come by? Because followers in liberal democracies are not very well behaved anymore. They don't follow. Instead, they scream and yell and they complain. Even when somebody does something good, they are often not happy. They are often angry and they take to social media. And you hear a lot of, you know, I'm tempted to say bitching and moaning, but it's very, very hard for a leader, not just political leaders, corporate leaders, leaders of educational, we just saw two out of those three presidents that were grilled in Congress have now stepped down. It's just hard to be a leader these days. Very, very hard. And that trajectory of history explains a lot. Point number two I made, leaders in liberal democracies are no longer protected by what used to be their mantle of authority. And I think, by the way, the presidency of these three institutions that I just referred to, educational institutions, Penn, Harvard, and MIT, those used to be positions that were virtually unassailable. Hmm. And within not too much of a time frame, not too much of a time span, these positions have become like leaders everywhere, vulnerable to attack. Who cares that you're president of Harvard? Who cares that you're president of MIT or Penn? You are fair game. Hmm. And that change in the culture, making these people fair game for attack, dismantling the mantle of authority again, has a lot to do with why it's so hard to be a leader. The death of civics and civility, I don't want to take too much time on each of these. That's rather self-explanatory. Then I have the color of money. Hmm. The fact that the pay discrepancies between the inequity in the American political system, the failures in some sense of capitalism, meaning the incredible gap now between those at the very top and those in the middle and at the bottom. Leaders in the private sector are making humongous sums of money. And on the one hand, we envy them. And on the other hand, we denigrate and deride them for being what we call filthy rich. And by the way, Sean Fain, the union leader that I earlier mentioned, has no trouble taking on the filthy rich. He's really 
very front and center on that. And again, I think we may see more of that in 2024. Hmm. The ubiquity of social media, that's self-explanatory. And I also talk about the diminishment of the liberal arts, as anybody who knows Mark knows. I don't know how, how you can be a thoughtful leader, a good leader, without having some sense of history and philosophy and politics and even music and art and literature. That escapes me, but the liberal arts in our day and age are generally derided and diminished. They don't play much of a part in educating anybody anymore. I think it's a great misfortune. God knows when Kissinger talks about great leaders, he is talking about men and women, in Kissinger's case, mostly men, who were supremely well in almost all cases educated. And finally, the absence of shared values. You know, in the old Mm -hmm. days, I'm old enough, God knows, to remember when in the United States, and this is the single example that I use in the blog, Uh, Not only were we taught not to lie, and we are still taught generally in the home and in schools not to lie, uh, but somehow in our public officials, we dismiss it or excuse it as just another untruth. We fabricate it. We imagine things that are not so. Definitions of reality differ, and it makes it very, very hard for a body politics or indeed any group or organization to settle on a single individual and bestow on them the respect and admiration, even if it's mixed and many people disagree, great leaders nevertheless manage to accumulate large reservoirs of respect and admiration. And by and large, in this day and age, people in liberal democracies are reluctant to bestow that on any single individual. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I was saying to you before we started, I'm, I'm listening to a book by Barbara Walter, How Civil Wars Start. And it's interesting because she's a political scientist. She does a brilliant job of, of in some ways, just kind of laying out the playbook of some of these leaders, these, these individuals who there's a very simple playbook that is that is used by individuals in kind of, populist fascist factions and my mind has been going to even since our conversation and my conversation with Dennis Turish what is the antidote what is the other side and i i'd mentioned in our previous conversation you know you have these individuals who are kind of forces they're forces of nature they just are a lot of history in in that realm of academia they don't necessarily elevate the individual they kind of elevate more of the context But there are these individuals who come along, whether it's a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, like them or not, or Roosevelt, who they are forces to be dealt with. Trump is a force. Xi, force. You've written about these individuals. And, you know, sometimes they're a force for quote unquote good. And I know that you say that kind of depends on how we're defining that. But in a general sense, we're trying to make the world a better place yes, and, and better for more individuals, access for more individuals to at least provide that. So I, I'm thinking about that antidote because I think in some ways I love your point of view here. Who is that individual and what is that recipe for someone to be a force? But the playbook's there on how to do it the other way. I use identity politics. I, I just, It's a very simple playbook in many ways. 
What's the antidote for that? And I don't want to take us in some long conversation again, but that's where my mind is right now. No, no. And I think it's, you know, arguably you're raising the most important question, certainly for Americans. Now we're in the year of our next presidential election, 2024. I think it's the most important question that can raise. And I actually think, Scott, you're framing it very well, because even I think since our last conversation a few days ago, I have come to think that we focus too much. I touched on this a little when we last spoke, but it's even sort of crystallized a bit more since we spoke. I think we're focusing too much on Donald Trump and the Republicans and everything that he represents. And many Americans, many of us, I'll speak for myself, are not happy with that as an alternative and think it would damage the tradition of American democracy. So. I'll take that as a given. So I say to myself, kind of exactly what you just said, what's the antidote to that? Now, I think in our last conversation, I mentioned a countervailing leader. Mm. I'm sensing a book title, Barbara. Well, <laughs> well, not. Uh, I don't have to do that right now, I hope. Uh, I'll, I'm just going to speculate. It's needed. <laughs> uh, Scott, but, but if you're thinking of a team... That's an extremely strong offensive team. How do you counter that? You counter it with a strong defense. And I think what we lack right now is a Democrat, a leader in the Democratic Party who seems to us strong enough to be, and I'm going to just plagiarize, oops, I better be careful using that word, borrow your word, antidote. I like that word. How do we counteract? If you consider some elements of American politics and culture toxic, what is the antidote for that toxicity? And I would say it is very possibly a leader or a group of leaders who seem to represent the brighter side, the the optimistic side. America, I feel like, you know, Ronald Reagan here, but America's shining city on a hill, almost a throwback to when individuals could represent the best of the United States and whether the Democrats are mounting the strongest possible offense at this moment in time, I would suggest to you is an open question. I want to make something super clear for listeners here as well. I don't think either one of us call me out if I'm if I'm being incorrect here, because when when an individual really explores your your reading, you pick on all sides and I think what I'm sensing from you and what's getting more clear for me is this isn't about Republican or Democrat. This is about how we are engaging, how we engage in the process of doing democracy. There's some individuals and some factions that are taking moves from playbooks that are not the playbook we want to be playing from. Now, again, Bill Clinton, terrible character flaws. John F. Kennedy, terrible character flaws. Donald Trump, terrible character flaws. And I don't think it's about whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or it's what they think is best for the United States per se. That's up for debate. Let's have that conversation. Let's go there. Let's do that. You know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, Clinton and Gingrich, let's collaborate and work. And I think that's what we are both landing on as what's being degraded here. I think the conversation comes down to Trump a lot of the time, but it's really about how are we doing the work here and how does that work? 
How do we save that? The well, work- I agree with every word except maybe because I'm in the end a leadership person. And I, as you said, I'm always interested in the system, not the, yeah. not the individual. But I think the other side that you're talking about, the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and we, you know, those of us who are interested in leadership, we do acknowledge that much of humankind bestows on a handful of individuals the capacity or the authority to lead us. And in this case, we're likely to be faced, if we're just talking about the American presidency, but, but with Donald Trump and some unknown vice presidential candidate on the one hand, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the other. And I guess what I'm concluding, and this is a little bit what I said before, that our fixation on Trump is, I wouldn't say it's misguided, but it's inadequate. It's insufficient. We ought to be equally fixating on the countervailing force, presumably the Biden-Harris ticket. And if that strikes us as insufficient or weak as an antidote, again, to use your apt word, then we need to look as much at that as we do with Donald Trump and this incessant fixation. Uh, I mean, I do watch MSNBC, for example, and they are simply fixated. They will not acknowledge, people on that network will not acknowledge, at least not yet, the weaknesses of Biden-Harris because they are so fixated on the liabilities and deficits of Donald Trump. But that's not going to cut it in 2024. We need to be, dare I use the term, fair and balanced and look with an equally critical eye at our leaders on the Democratic side as on the Republican side. And I don't think Americans are sufficiently doing that. And we see it in the poll numbers which are not great, and in lots of young people who are leaving the Democratic ticket and say they won't vote, and in lots of African-American men and lots of Hispanics. And that's not a strong recipe for success in November for those who are anti-Trump. Yeah. Okay. Switching gears a little bit here with follower of the year. Now, that's going to be a new thing for any number of listeners, but I love it. And, And let's talk a little bit about that. Why a follower of the year? And then who is your choice? Well, again, I define follower in a very, very particular way. In this case, you know, as I write, I wrote this a long time ago in a book called Followership. With so many of these words in our field, in our shared field, Scott, it's about semantics. And people have hated the word follower, even though it's the natural antonym to leader, because the assumption has always been that followers follow. But I define followers not by behavior, but by rank. Followers are people with little or no power, little or no authority, and little or no influence. And they can sometimes play a very, even though on paper they seem like who cares, they can play an outsized role. And the person that I chose for follower of the year has zero power and has zero authority and has actually very little influence because not a lot of people are doing what he wants them to do. And the person's name, and some of your listeners will know the name, others, many others will not, but it is a Russian dissident, probably the most famous Russian dissident, has been famous for many years, at least uh, 10 or 15. And his name is Alexei Navalny. And as we sit here comfortably ensconced in our 
studies, you and I, he is, dare I say, rotting away in a Siberian prison because Putin has decided in recent years, he did used to, you know, Putin was not, let's say 10 years ago, as authoritarian or dictatorial as he is now. Yeah. He is much, much worse now. Leaders do go from bad to worse unless they are stopped. Title of my forthcoming book. Putin is a great example. He is much worse now than he was even five years ago, not to speak of 10 or 12 or 20 when he first came to power, 21, 22. And he is now just effectively, he has he tried to murder Navalny. Navalny came close to being poisoned to death. He has tried every which way to eliminate him. He finally has decided the mur- the, the attempted assassination did not work. And he has locked him away. Um, Navalny, as I'm as we're sitting here, is sentenced to something like 10 or 20 years in prison. The prison sentences always get longer and the prisons themselves get uh, harsher and meaner. And it, uh, Navalny is a martyr. He was taken to Germany when he was poisoned. He could have chosen to stay in Germany. He has made a very deliberate attempt, self-conscious attempt, to be martyred at the hands of Vladimir Putin. And indeed, that seems to be what is happening with no sense of change here unless uh, Putin somehow leaves or has an incredible change of heart, both of which for the moment seem extremely unlikely. You know, you're making me think I was just in Copenhagen for the International Studying Leadership Conference, and we went to the Louisiana Museum and there was an exhibit on Pussy Riot. Yeah. And oh my gosh, I mean, just overwhelming is the word for that exhibit, but overwhelming also for kind of the activism that they have been engaged in for a, a strong decade in and out of prisons, in and out of I mean, trouble with with uh, Putin. And so fascinating, right? Yeah, we should say we should say that these are three women. I think it's three women who are music, who were rock and roll or a pop band or whatever. And they decided to object to Vladimir Putin and have paid a great, great price for doing so. Yes. Yeah. Pussy Riot, a very apt group to raise. Still exactly the same category of dissident. It's fascinating. They they just keep coming back. And, you know, whether it's putting pride flags on governmental buildings or playing their, it's kind of punk, right? I mean, they were playing their music. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Being a dissident in any of these countries is a, you know, it's, you, you look at them and say, these are holy fools, you know, they're doing the right thing, but by normal standards of how we want to live our lives, they are they are foolish. They are foolish, but they are heroic fools. And Pussy Riot and Navalny, Alexei Navalny, those are names that will go down in history, as these dissidents' names always do, but it can take a very, very long time for that to happen. Were there any others that you had on your list of potential followers of the year that you had considered? You know, I have to say that in this case, you know, whereas uh, with leaders that nobody left to mind, I've been watching Navalny for years. I've been writing about him for years. He has stood out. Uh, there are certainly dissidents in other countries. I, In my new book, I mentioned some dissidents in China. But Navalny is very, you know, w- relatively quite well known in the West. 
And he's got, you know, we were talking earlier about what makes a leader who stands out or a thought in this case, a follower who's saying, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's even now he's got a bit of a sense of humor in his circumstances, notwithstanding. He's a charismatic man, which is precisely why Putin feels he needs to lock him up and throw away the key. Hmm. So there you go. There you go. Well, in staying in this circle here, you know, we've got the chef, right? How about that? Putin's chef, quote unquote. Well, I believe he's dead and gone. He is. He <laughs> yeah. is. He was a casualty, right? He was a casualty, but he was uh, widely known as an awful, awful man. We're talking about Evgeny Prigozhin, yep. a guy who led a brief, I don't know, some called it a mutiny against Putin. I'm not so sure that's an apt word. Putin allowed him, so to speak, to live for, let's say, a happy year. And everybody's going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Putin is allowing Prigozhin to live, even though Prigozhin tried to go against Putin. And sure enough, one fine day or not so fine day for, for everybody who was on the plane, the plane that Prigozhin was on exploded in midair and landed with everybody on board dead. Yeah. So he got rid of him. And Putin is known, has been known for years to get rid of those that he considers his arch enemies. Of course, always indirectly, no obvious fingerprints, but there's no question that Putin has ultimately been responsible for everything that happens in Russia for the last certainly 15, but even longer years, 20, 22 years. And there's no, you know, when, when he invaded Ukraine, people thought, okay, this can't last. It was such a big mistake. It can't happen. But he, by the way, speaking of leader of the year, ironically, he'd be a candidate again for 2023. He has survived 2023 in ways that most people, including in the West, Americans thought was not possible. And yet Russia's doing relatively well now again in the war against Ukraine. So he has shown survival instincts far more powerful than most. Hmm. Well, and again, to your point, from the playbook of of a dictator, right? It's it's kill your opposition. Don't uh, shift through your ideas and your brilliance. <laughs> oh. get, kill them or lock them up. In any case, get rid of them in one or another fashion, whether it's Pussy Riot or Navalny or a host of other people that we could talk about whose names are much less well-known. Yeah, and again, I think... I think I just want to underscore that point. It's not about Republican, Democrat. It's about the process and how we engage in that process. And are we engaging in the process in an honorable way, in a fair and level playing field way, in a way that, to your point from earlier, you know, tell the truth. <laughs> that's our first indicator. Man, that, of course, that is like what, like, <laughs> to me, that's the most basic and in some ways, therefore, interesting question. Everything what? I needed to know about leadership, I learned in kindergarten. <laughs> Honestly, it's 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 weird. It's just weird to live in a moment when the truth is so important in our private lives. Still, we're supposed to tell the truth to our parents and to our spouses and to our friends and to our bosses. But in our public life, boy, it's tough out there. Yeah. Really, really tough out there. Yeah. So. No wonder Kissinger lamented the decline of great leadership. He was onto something, but for mm. a good and sound reason. It's not, in other words, an accident that we are where we are. 
Well, and, and to our previous conversation, and then we'll kind of close out here, but when we say great leadership, I think the context has shifted. The, the context of when our liberal democracy yeah. is strong and locked in and is at a 10 on those different scales that they, they talk about, that the political scientists talk about, then, you know, a certain approach works. But if we're at a five as a democracy and we're closer to an onocracy, well, probably our approach to leadership needs to shift as well. And so I think that's kind of an interesting thing that's emerged out of our conversation today. And that's why context in your writing is so incredibly important. And by the way, followers too. I mean, yes, yes. Uh, for anybody in our field, for better and worse, Scott, 2024 is going to be a gold mine, a gold mine. But unless you follow, unless you follow or pay, I should say pay, it may be a better word here than follow, pay attention to all three elements of the system. If we fixate only on the people at the top and don't pay sufficient attention to the American people and don't pay sufficient attention to the context within which the people at the top and the rest of us are all embedded, we're not going to get it. At the very least, we may not be able to change anything, Scott, but we can at least apply to the next year a level of learning and sophistication that may not be available to the average person. So you and your podcast have a real role and, dare I say, responsibility over the next 10 months. It's not just elections, as you've read, I'm sure, in the United States, but in many other so-called democracies around the world, including, by the way, in Russia. So it's quite a year for people who have an interest in leadership and followership. Quite a year. A lot of shifts in places like Germany, the Netherlands, I mean, Denmark, I mean, Sweden. 100%. 100%. And speaking of contextual factors, I mean, we didn't mention any specifics, whether it's abortion or I would say at the top of the pile now is immigration and the impact of immigration. And you made, you made me think of it when you said Denmark and Sweden and the European countries, not to speak of what's happening in the United States. Yeah, That is a very, very monster issue. And one could argue that the Democrats have been paying insufficient attention to it. And now it's coming back to bite them. Well, and again, back to the playbook the fascist playbook, we other, whoever we can. 100%. And 100%. Uh, immigrants are always fair game. But since the, 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 the other, States, however defined. However we're immigrants define. being one of them, but religion, the other. Yep, exactly. Right. So on that cheery note, <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, Scott, for you and your field and me and my field this year, never has there been a more urgent one, at least not in a very long time. So in that sense, we are in our wheelhouse for better and worse. Yes. And let's keep let's keep thinking about that. Uh, Again, there's no better word that I have in my mind, but that antidote. And again, it's not about the the ideas that these individuals stand for. It's about the process in which we do the work and co-create our future. And there's an easy and kind of an unfair playbook we can be playing that is not going to take us somewhere good. There's a fair, uh, I should say more fair, it's never been perfectly fair by any stretch of the imagination, at least in the United States, but there's there's a better path forward, a more sustainable path forward, I would say. I'm looking forward, Scott, to following you down that path. Okay, okay. You lead, I'll follow. How's that? 
I think it's the other way around. I don't think so. You you came up with the path imagery and I'm ready to follow. Thanks okay. so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Be well, Barbara. Take care. So it's interesting. You know, Barbara Kellerman does not choose a leader of the year. And what a fun conversation. What a fascinating conversation. And my head is in seven or eight places. Our previous conversation was about the context, and we were kind of wandering a little bit and exploring, and that was a lot of fun. And I very, very much appreciated that conversation. But, you know, in, in many ways, it has me reflecting on our democracy and democracies throughout the world. And so there's going to be some episodes coming up about democracy, kind of exploring this conversation. And I've said this before on the podcast, but, you know, as soon as a large faction of people decides that attacking our capital on January 6th in the United States is the next best solution, uh, we're not well. Or as soon as a large faction of people decide that burning down a police precinct in Minneapolis is the next best option, uh, we're not well. And so there's, there's these indicators that our democracy in some ways is not in a good place, is not moving in a good direction. So what type of leadership will help us solve for that? What type of leadership will move the needle on decreasing the gap in values, promote communication and dialogue, restore some norms of how we work together to achieve progress? That's what I'm interested in. I find that absolutely fascinating. There's a gentleman named Ian Bremer. I'm going to put a couple links in the show notes for you, but it's really, really interesting. He's fascinated by, in many ways, kind of risk. And he publishes this document, The Top Risks of 2024. And there's things like the Middle East is on the brink and a partitioned Ukraine and ungoverned AI. But his number one risk right now is the United States versus itself. So it's interesting. When you look at our democracy, how do we move forward in a healthy direction, a more sustainable direction as a country versus the opposite? That's the type of leadership I'm kind of interested in. And when I was talking about the antidote in our conversation, I'm interested in that. I really, truly am. How do we combat some of this polarization and digitization, social media, outwardly biased news outlets, they are all contributing to some of that challenge. But how do we solve and move forward in a sustainable way? That's what I'm thinking about. The practical wisdom for me is that if Dr. Kellerman can't identify a leader of the year, we have some thinking to do. There's opportunity there. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You 
You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.